Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. And it's funny, when I lived in L.A. for all those years, I hardly ever went out on St. Patrick's Day because if you didn't get to a bar by 8 in the morning, they'd be packed because there's not a ton of Irish bars in L.A. Well, this year, because I live outside Philadelphia, there's Irish bars everywhere. So I'm actually going to go out tomorrow. And I figure I'm going to go out at noon for a beer or two. Because when you go out at 8 in the morning, you know what? You're a hardcore drinker. And your people are wasted by 1 o'clock. And the people who show up later at night have been drinking all day, so they're all messy. So I'm going to go out. I'm looking forward to it. Have myself a nice beer or two. And then come home and eat some crock-pot corned beef and cabbage. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's... Uh, you know, very talented. I mean, he's, he's a legend. We could say legendary. And he has a documentary being made about him right now with uh, from director Fran Strine. And my guest is Ray Parker Jr. How you doing, Ray? Hey, I'm doing great. Can't complain. <laughs> I got to ask you, because you, you go by Ray Parker Jr. And I my brother's a junior also. But if you played professional football on your jersey, would you, no. would you have Parker or Parker Jr.? Well, my son played professional football, so he put Parker on there. All right, so that's that's okay. Because I never understood when they put Parker Junior. Parker at a third. Who who'd your, son, who'd your son play for? Who did he play for? He played for Texas State University, and they won the Southern Conference today. The year he played. Oh, that's awesome! And I gotta. Yeah. Th- I got to tell you, so I was telling people you were going to be on my show and on Facebook, and people will love it because they love your music, but someone brought up how good of an actor you were in the movie Enemy Territory. Do you remember? <laughs> he said you were really good. What was, did you, did you want to pursue acting, or did just get, did it get out of your system, or did someone say we have this role for you? Well, you know what, I was on several sitcoms, I did a few movies and, and a bunch of the other stuff, but you know, the problem with acting, unlike music, music I control the whole thing because I write the songs, I produce it, I do it. You know, the, the thing that, first of all, I had a good time acting that, maybe I'll do some more. But here's the problem with acting. They wake you up at like 3 o'clock in the morning. They put you in makeup by 4, and then they don't use you till 1 in the afternoon. And every hour and a half, they keep changing the makeup, and so you're dead tired. You're trying to remember your parts, and you got everything under control, but you had no sleep because they woke you up early. And then sometimes they don't even get to your part the whole day. So it's it's very time-consuming. And, you know, there were a couple of things where, you know, you always look at the movies and say, boy, I can't wait to kiss the pretty girl. That's worth acting just for that. Well, you know, sometimes you don't get to choose who they pairing you up with. <laughs> and I mean, they paired me up with one girl on a TV show. And I mean, she had so much lipstick on. She kissed me. The lipstick got all over me. Then they said, okay, we got to retake that. So they had to send me the makeup, take all the makeup off, get the lipstick off my face, and start all over again. And you could just see her gobbing more lipstick off. You know, it was just the craziest thing, you know. So, so it's, you know, these people, they earn their money acting. I mean, it's, it's a little harder than you would think. I'd say, no, especially, I mean, it's, it's just funny. We don't think about that. Like, what if they pair you up with someone you yeah. can't stand, and you're on set, and you're like, God, I hate this person. <laughs> I got to kiss him. And you're like, oh, my God. Every work would be, like, right. worse than going to a nine-to-five job. So, now, as a kid, yeah. you started playing music as a kid. Now, did you start off on the clarinet? Is that true? Yes, I started off on the clarinet in first grade. I was six years old. And I played the clarinet, then I played a little bit of saxophone later. And at age 10, my brother had an acoustic, little cheap, we call it box guitar. And I loved his box guitar better than I liked my $700 Busher saxophone. So I traded him. <laughs> my dad was pretty upset. But I traded him my expensive saxophone for his cheap guitar. And I've been with the guitar ever since. 
Now, you start playing. When you pick it up, did you just know you were good? I mean, you know, like an athlete, you can tell yeah. the kids. Did you just feel yeah, it like you like felt it? Your wife. It's clear that was just another girl. But when I when I picked up the guitar, it's like meeting your wife. I mean, that was it. We were married right then and there. Now, as a kid, because you know you're a young kid, did you practice a lot? I mean, what was what was your road to? I practice every day. I'm, I, I know that book about the ten thousand hours. And I'm more than sure I had ten thousand hours by age eleven. So you just you practice, you practice, and what was your goal as a kid? What did you want to do as a musician? I mean, did you want to be at your life, and how did you? I just start? wanted to be. I just wanted to be good. And that so, was the goal, just to play and be good. Now, I didn't really know anything about writing songs or making records. Or, that had never really occurred to me. I just wanted to be good. Now, when did you start getting noticed? And I know you started working at a very young age. How did that all come about? Yeah, well, I started, you know, I used to play on the porch because my dad was tired of hearing it in the house. And so one guy actually paid me 15 or $20 to play the same thing I was playing on my father's porch in his backyard. So that was my real first gig that made some money. Then, you know, as things progressed, I got in some bands, and we started playing out, and people heard me. And I ended up playing with, going on a tour with the Spinners at about age 13 or 14. I remember they had to ask my mother, could I, you know, they take me out Friday night and bring me back early Monday morning before school. And then from there, you know, Hamilton Bohannon heard me on uh, playing the Latin Quarter and put me in the Motown band which was the house band, a place called 20 Grand. We backed Gladys Knight and the Pips, Temptations, uh, George Clinton, Parliament, before it was Parliament Funkadelic, and Chuck Jackson, just a whole bunch of famous actors. So we really had a good time. Now, as a kid, you know, when you're 13 and you're going on the road, do you, are you yeah. uh, wondering, are you sitting in your mind and saying, normal kids don't do that? Like the, the kids in the playground do this. Do you, do you, did you know how special you were and how talented? Well, my parents did because my dad used to always say, look at my son, he's not doing drugs and he's not getting in trouble and we ain't got to spend no money on a lawyer. The guitar's cheaper. Let's get him a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, what is it like though, at 13 gigging? I mean, it's got to be, a, it's got to be a, a fascinating world to you because at 13 we're so, you know, eyes open, you know, we're in that age, we're coming to our yeah. young manhood. And so, I mean, how did you, how did you adapt to that? Because you're also around older musicians. Yeah. Well, first of all, there was no adapting. Remember, I've been playing since six years old, so my whole world was music anyway. I didn't know anything else. So I sort of missed all that. Uh, like I tell people, you know, I never went to a high school party and danced with the girls or anything that. I was always playing at them if, if I was there. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I sort of missed I sort of missed my childhood, but I wouldn't change it for the world because everything I did was so much fun, and I was having a good time. So it's it's a uh, you give up one sort of lifestyle, but, but I think the one I chose was just wonderful. Well, you sit there, you have, you're working with these uh, awesome artists. What was it like working with Marvin Gaye? Well, Marvin Gaye was wonderful. And, and, and again, not much, not, uh, first of all, I knew Marvin Gaye was famous, but not much appreciation for him because, you know, I was young and, and not saying he was new at the time, but he was, you know, we were making history at the moment and we didn't know it. But we'd go in the studio with Marvin, cut the songs, and then we'd go over to his house and sit in the living room and listen to it on his tannoy speakers with Macintosh amps. And just, you know, sit there, fold your legs, and check out all the new stuff we put up. And, uh, you know, then later, it, it becomes part of history, and everybody's excited. I remember this one special moment with Marvin Gaye. 
where he was in the studio and you know everybody back then they like to smoke and I was underage so I think he felt bad because everybody was partaking and I wasn't so he threw me the keys to his $50,000 Cadillac he had he had one of those cars like a Superfly and I just drove that thing for a couple of hours while everybody else did their thing and then I came back so that was just the most fun I'd ever had you know now as a when you're younger and even to this day how did you start developing your songwriting because you know I know you wrote uh, with, for something for Shaka Khan and you've written for a lot of people but you wrote at a young age yeah. how are you as a 16 year old or how when you start writing how are you deciding like what lyrics I mean how do you how does a kid have that viewpoint well first of all I really learned well I started songwriting at about 16 and I wrote some with Marvin Gaye but I really figured out how to make the whole song by myself at 18 and I had the best teacher in the world. Stevie Wonder took me in the studio personally, paid for all the studio time, took my demo tapes and showed me how to turn those into real records. So I'm, I'm going to credit him with that. And, and I, I feel like I graduated Wonder University. And then six months later, I, I was writing number one records. What's that like when you're, when you're sitting there and you hear your record goes number one and, and, and at such a young age? I mean, what is the well, feeling? You know, first of all, you got to not wet your pants. But, I mean, when you hear your stuff come on the radio, it is the most exciting thing you could ever imagine. I remember the first time I even just heard my guitar for the first time coming on the radio, and I thought that was exciting. But when you hear your own song, your own creation that you put together come on the radio, that's, that's the highest high you can get. Now you're sitting there, you're writing for people, you're playing for people. When do you decide to form your own band? 22 years old, I decide the only way to get this thing to really work is you got to stop sitting at the telephone waiting on it to ring. I was doing enormously well, recording sessions, touring, all this and stuff. But I could never take a vacation because I was afraid I'd miss a phone call. To, to do some work and make some money. So you're basically like a slave tied to your telephone, hoping that it'll ring. You're not even really advertising for the business to come in. And so I always wanted to be the guy to, to make my own phone calls to me. So, so that prompted, you know, flipping things around. Now, how do you decide, how do you go about it? I always talk to musicians, how do you go about getting a band together back then? Because now you can put something on the internet. But back then, you just couldn't sit there yeah. and say, hey, hey, you, you, there was no internet. How did you get, how did you no, put your first band no together? Internet. I mean, you must, it must have been, was it hard for you? Because you were known, though, so it must have been a little bit easier. Uh, no, it was definitely hard. I was known for playing the guitar, but not for singing or making records or writing songs or, you know, producing records. Definitely not. In fact, Clive Davis wrote in his book, I asked him for a whole bunch of things that I'd never done before. He, he decided to take a shot with me and let me try it, you know. So it was that, that big of a scare. But, but, you know, what's interesting is I put together the music first, and I tried to get the music as good as I could make it. And then I just went out door to door and started trying to sell it. Now, who did you in, get together in your first band? Who did you hit up? Were they friends of yours or were they people that I hit up just... all my friends, all friends of mine, yeah. And now, is it easy when you're hitting them up to be in your band? Because you are the front man. I mean, do they sit there and go, I mean, a drummer, of course, isn't going to be the front man. But how do people react when you say, okay, this is going to be my band. I want you to join it. Well, I was going to split the band with everybody. Because I thought when you were a kid, everybody just formed a band. We just split it all. But, you know, the interesting thing is my band didn't want to split it. They wanted to get cash money up front. So they just wanted a salary. So they said, no, we don't want to take a risk and be signed up. Something go wrong. We tied up to these guys for years. 
And so they wanted cash money, so I, I had to borrow money from the record company to pay my band a lot of money. And then when the record hit, everybody was upset because they weren't getting royalties. Right. You know, so you can never, you can never win, man. You ever notice that? I always say people are always going to bitch win. about and something. I'm looking at the guys. Yeah, it's, and I'm looking at the guys like you know, guys. When you're in Vegas, you got to put your quarter in the slot machine before it hits the seven, not exactly. after it hits the seven. You know what I mean? You can't say, oh, "Wait, wait, here's my five dollars. I want to get something." You know, once I hit the seven, it's my money. You know. So when you, when you when the first album from radio came out. Was it a fun time in the studio, or did you feel pressured because you were writing the music? What was it like? Because you've been writing and playing for people, but now, as you said, you're the man. What is it like when you're in the studio, and you're still not old, you're still a young man. What is that like? What kind of pressures did you feel? Well, there wasn't a lot of pressure, because remember, I wrote, when I put, was recording Jack and Jill and a lot of those songs, I didn't have a record deal yet. So I'm just at home doing the best I can you know, desperately trying to get discovered or whatever you want to call it, get somebody to listen to me. And, you know, at that age, uh, unlike today, at, at 22 years old, you really feel invincible, you know? <laughs> I think that's why people can play football and basketball. I mean, you really feel invincible at 22. You feel like you're right. And when you look back on it, you say, boy, did I do that? Because, I mean, you know, now I'm more scared. But at that time, I was fearless. I mean, I didn't want to hear any, no negativity could stop me. I was just isn't that amazing? I used to do stand-up comedy in the Philadelphia area, and I did it on the road for a long time. Yeah. And we had a kid, this kid Ronnie Long, and he was uh, from from West Philly, and he was 16, and we'd watch him on stage, and he had no fear. Like, we were worried, like, you know, well, right. we got we to get laughs, but if we don't get the laughs, we're, we're going to lose a booking, so we're not going to, this is our job. And it's funny, because, <laughs> I mean, you're sitting there, but for this kid, he didn't give a crap. He would go up and just say stuff, and he right. would kill, and we're like... Wow, it's it's such a right. It's such a feeling of invincibility, and you don't you don't care if they say no. Right? Yeah, you don't care. Hit me with a tomato. I'd maybe take it off my face and throw it back at you. Right. So 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 radio is doing well, and then you guys end up breaking up. How? Why did you break up? What was it? Was there a reason behind it, or did you feel like you guys were just growing out of the music, or what happened? No, every you know the original thing was Clive Davis just wanted me to be Ray Parker Jr. But I, I invented the band radio, so I wouldn't have to sing all the songs because at that time I didn't think I could sing that well. And as we got done with the first record, there were a lot of egos. You know, everybody thought they were the star of the band. You know, people come to me and say, well, you're on stage with us. You saw all the girls looking at me, right? And I'm like, well, not really. I thought the girls were looking at me. I'm the handsome guy. You know? So we, we were having like those kind of discussions more so than the money. What is it like? Because you are a handsome guy. What is that feeling when you're on stage and all these women are checking you out? I mean, does that compare to anything like someone who me when I was did comedy? If I if a girl laughed at me, I was like, oh, okay. But what is it? What is a? How can you explain yeah. to a normal person who hasn't been a front man who is yeah. a huge? What is it like? It's it's very very exciting, and and that's why I said when we used to discuss things with the band, we're all on the same stage, right? And I'm looking at the girls in the front row, and I'm saying, man, look at all those girls in the front row. They're just creaming, looking at me, and I'm sitting here singing and jamming, having a good time. But then when you get backstage, you know, the bass player will look at you and go, man, did you see all those girls in the front row looking at me? No, no, no. I said, no. And so you look at him and go, dude, I was at the front. I, they weren't looking at you. They were looking at me. And he says, man, I was right to the left. Trust me, they were looking at me. They weren't looking at you. So, you, know, you know, everybody sees something different. You got, 
you know, five, six guys on stage, and all six guys saw something different. What are some of the craziest things women have done? Like, because now we don't, now it's different because of social media, but what are some of the, like, some adoration you've seen from fans over the years? What are some of the craziest things people well, have given? Well, there was you? one girl, yeah, there was one girl that got past security because she was said she was with the drummer, something like that. And once she got to the drummer's room, she told the drummer she was going to get some ice, and then she came to my room because she was already <laughs> on the floor. And I opened the door, right? And she came in the room. I'm like, how the heck did she get here? I had to retrace that back later. But she just came in the room, took her clothes off, got in the bed, says, I'm only doing this for you. And it's like she was doing me a big favor. I'm like, get out of my bed. I'm calling security. You know? A problem that most men would love to have. <laughs> very, very difficult. And she was too, too. Yeah, see that? Very difficult problem. So, so you break yeah. up and then you, you go. Only, you only really have about 10 seconds to make a decision in case like that. You know? Yeah, really. You 15, 20 seconds, you're done. Yeah, because <laughs> and the, another thing is you don't know if they're crazy because what you have to worry about is if they're that smart to elude and get through and get to your room, they might just be a, a right. whack job. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and that's why I said you really only have about 15 <laughs> seconds before nature takes over. I mean, you got 15 seconds to say, I'm not doing this, I'm out of here, I'm running out of the room, call security. Because if you sit there and talk to her for a minute, she's got you there, that's it. Do you ever have a stalker, like a woman that showed, would show up at all different cities? Did you ever encounter oh, that? Oh my gosh, yes, many. <laughs> many, I had to call, you know, the um, FBI a couple of times, and they had to go talk to some of these people, and you know, you get the one girl, they, they tell you all this crazy stuff, and then it's, it's hard, because you're going to do a concert, and they put the spotlight on you with the concert. I mean, all you need is some crazy person out there, you know, with the spotlight right on you. And they're, they're calling, threatening you and telling you that, 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 that spiritually you two were meant to be together. And you're saying, well, what, that's, I thought that's what they told my wife, you know. <laughs> so, you know, all these people say the Lord said we should be together. I say, all 20 of y'all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty interesting thing. But, you know, it's quite scary. At the time. I would I would think it is because uh, it's just you are in front of the audience and and women you know yeah. people can they could find what the hotel you're in I mean it's it's something that did it ever detract from your performance did you ever get one of these crazy calls right before you went on stage Oh absolutely absolutely in fact uh, how about recently I mean I'm older now I'm sixty years old. But recently, they gave, uh, a few years ago, just three, four years ago, they gave me a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and we got death threats, even at this late date. But that's just, that's just screwed up. What is it like, though, to get a star? What is that feeling when you sit there as a little kid playing the clarinet at six years old, and now you have a yeah. Hollywood star? What goes through your mind, and how is the ceremony? Who was all there? My, first of all, my absolute favorite thing in life, my favorite award in life, is a star on Hollywood Boulevard. I mean... I visited extra all the time and wiped it clean it down myself, you know. <laughs> but it was one of those things. Everybody was there. Bill Withers spoke. George Benson spoke. Uh, Eddie Eddie Holland spoke. Uh, we had Denise Williams perform. Cheryl Lynn, George Benson sang on Broadway at the party. And all the guys from Earth, Wind, Fire. Andre Crouch was there, which was super. And just everybody was there. I mean, it was just an unbelievable thing. They blocked off Hollywood Boulevard. And to me, when I was a kid, I came to Hollywood, and all I did was walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard looking at the, the stars' names and stuff, never even thinking that one day I could get one of these stars. I mean, it's just it's just the biggest honor in the world. Now, where are you located, and who are you who are you between? Do you know? 
I am located really, really in a good spot. First of all, I'm in front of the old director's guild, so it's a nice building. It's not like a hamburger stand. You know, sitting in front of it. No. One of those no, ugly no. tourist shops uh, with the souvenirs. Also the magazine store. Yeah, yeah, none of that stuff. <laughs> and my, my, the people around me are wonderful. First of all, it's the Bridges Brothers. Uh, um, it's a fair falsest there. But as far as music, right, the closest person to me is John Denver. Okay. Right. Then it's the Funk Brothers. I'm, my star is pointing at the Funk Brothers star, and there's pointing at mine. And those are my mentors from Detroit. And so I had a little bit to do with helping them get a star. Next thing you know, my star is right next to theirs. Then it's all my friends. Uh, George Benson is there. Herbie Hancock is there. Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, I worked with all those guys. And they're right there. Now, do they give you a little plaque? Right down the street. Do they give you a little plaque to take home with you? I mean, how does that work? Like, you get the yeah. star, but then they go, here, because you, you want to hang star, some... You, you get you get. You get the keys to the city, or they make excuse me, they make it Ray Parker Junior Day, March sixth, and then you get a little mini star that you could take home. But I bought like twenty of them from all my relatives and friends growing up who helped my career in a major way. Well, I want to go back to your career when you went solo, and I remember, you know, I mean, I'm I'm fifty three, and I remember when the other woman came out. We yeah. love that song, and that's when MTV was around yeah. too. What was it like when you were yeah. when you went on your own and you had that first big hit? What is your feeling, and what was your reason? Why did you write that song? What was what was the story behind it? Well, well, first of all, before we go there, see, I own the band Radio, so to me, they're all the same records. Like to me, I don't see any difference in the record before the other woman. It's a, I mean, it's a different song. I got that right, but the process of making a record was all the same. It's still me. I'm still playing the instruments. I wrote all the songs. So to me, it was, it's the same thing. Okay. Except Clive Davis was the one who kept changing the name of the band. As people left the band, he said, well, that's it. Now it's got to be Ray Parker Jr. Radio, which I always thought sounded a little bit old, like the 60s to me. And then finally he just said, okay, now more people left. Forget the whole thing. Let's just put the record out under your name. So that's really how that happened. It wasn't like a big change, you know, leaving the band or something like that. It was, it was all the same. Just make another record. Now, what was your experience in shooting videos back then? Did you enjoy them? I enjoyed it because nobody knew what a video was. And we didn't even know what you were supposed to be doing or how to shoot them. <laughs> like we cut a, a video for Jack and Jill, and everybody was shocked. We wanted one of the first bands to ever have a video. You know, we got a video on the first record. I mean, it was just the craziest thing. Uh, as soon as somebody said, you know, shoot a video, we'd be like, hmm, I wonder what we're going to be doing on this thing, you know. So it was pretty interesting. But we got the clothes, they got the smoke, and showed the record. And then the video, we did it. It makes it makes me sad that videos really aren't so big now. They were such an important part of music, and and so many of us, you know, yeah. I, I grew up outside Philadelphia, and I grew up in a in a predominantly Jewish town. You know, I mean, I was like minority because I was yeah. Christian, but we got to see so much music that we wouldn't have seen because classic rock was what was driven. You know, we heard all the classic rock stations, and it's. I mean, as a mm -hmm. musician, how do you feel about the, the the lack of videos now? Do you think they really helped people's careers back then? Uh, back then, there was not a lot of places to show the video, first of all. So it depended on what genre you were. If anybody had a TV or even anybody had that channel where they could see the video. It seems like as the 80s got in, like 81, 82, the videos got more popular. Like, we got a lot bigger budget to shoot the other woman video. Which, in fact, it was two videos we shot. One in England and one here. But as opposed to Jack and Jill, where it's just a stripped-down budget because there was no place to play the video. Now, 
after the other woman comes out, it's big. How eventually you you come into the ghost? How did Ghostbusters happen? Because that song, well, everyone saw that movie, and everybody knows that song. In fact, yeah. I got I got your voice message, and you have it, and I love it. And I was like, cool. I said, yeah. I was like, God, I, you know, I, I'm sitting there. I mean, I yeah, my voice me. message, my voice message is who you trying to call, right? right. Who you trying to call, <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, the the, the the only thing wrong with the voice message because everything is right with I mean people companies start wanting to use it and they pay me money when they hear it just like you heard it but the only thing that's wrong with that i got a lot of people call up and i answer the phone like somebody like yourself and they say wait a minute i didn't want you to answer the phone <laughs> i'm gonna call you back don't answer the phone right <laughs> we don't want to talk to you we want to hear the message when i called you the other day i thought at first you might be messing with me <laughs> Yeah. You're saying, Who's yeah, right. And I was like, wait, and I, I didn't want to say anything. Then I'm like, well, I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to interrupt. But uh, but how did how did the Ghostbusters song come about? How did you get involved with that? Well, well, I did all the Barry White records, and the publisher on the Barry White records was Carrie Lamell, and he ended up being the vice president of the Columbia Pictures. So he called me up and asked me would I write a song for the film because he thought I was the right guy. And you know what? I, I, I didn't think he was right, but, you know, he was right. He had whatever he envisioned. It happened just like he envisioned it. You know, and they had spent like a year or so trying to find somebody to write a song, but the director wanted the words Ghostbusters in the song. And nobody had anything that with the words Ghostbusters in it, so they, they gave it to me. And it's quite hard to do, actually. And I came up with a thing, the director liked it, and we were off and running in. But the beginning, it was only supposed to be 20 seconds of music over the library scene. And then when the director heard it, Ivan Rock. increase of man make this thing three and a half four minutes long and we got a hit record and so that's how it came about how did you come up with the chorus because everybody knows i mean it's just something like it's like it's 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 yeah, well there's a spot there's a spot in a movie where the four guys are standing there and they got the phone number underneath them and they're grabbing it they got their arms like they're gonna grab the backpack or something like that they got their backpacks on now you know if you're sleepy at three four in the morning that looks an awful lot like the drain cleaners and the insect repellent guys, right? And so when you see those drain cleaners, they say, who, who are you going to call to do this? They all say, call this number. So I thought, wow, everybody's saying call this number, and the Ghostbusters, it looks just like that to get the phone number on it. So I just thought, well, who are you going to call? If you got a problem with the ghosts and all this stuff, who are you going to call? And then that answer is the Ghostbusters. So sort of like a commercial. Which, by the way, turned up to be many, many commercials. We got some of this. But I, I recorded it like a commercial. Yeah. Now, did you think it would be as popular as it was when you finally had that three? I'm not sure musicians never know it's going to be so popular. Uh, but did you think it would be that uh, no giant? Way. No way. No way. I remember at Chinese Theater, me and a buddy of mine, we went to see some uh, Indiana Jones or something. And we sat in a car and I played him what I was doing. And we both looked at each other. He's a musician friend of mine, Sylvester. And we both looked at each other and said, oh, that sounds pretty good. And he said, yeah, man, you did a nice job. But none of us thought, wow, this is a game changer. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention. You know, it was just like, okay, you can always do good music. Here's another nice song. That, that'll work, you know. I don't know if it'll be a good record thing about a ghost, but you know, it sounds good, you know. That, so it wasn't that big of a thing. Now, it hits number one, and you said, you know, you got crazy, you, you know, when you first heard your guitar the first time on the radio. What's it like when you sit there, especially back then, it was like Billboard. People read Billboards. There wasn't a website. Like, that was a big thing. We would yeah. check the Billboard things. What goes through your mind? Do you sit there and just go, oh, my God, I have the number one song in the country? Yeah. 
Well, the thing about Ghostbusters that was interesting is the first time I ever had a record that just flew off the shelf. It was like somebody had an earthquake and knocked them all off the shelf. It sent them wherever. I mean, this song came out, and the head of promotion, Donnie Einer at the time, called me up within the first 10 days and said, that's it, the record's done. I already locked out all the stations, you know. And it takes weeks and weeks and weeks on a hit record to lock out all the stations. You got to go to R&B chart. They got to cross over. Then you got to get the P3 station. They got to get the P2. I mean, so you're just climbing your way up the ladder. And he's telling me in 10 days, everything's done. There's nothing else for him to do. He's going on vacation or something, you know. <laughs> it's just the <laughs> strangest thing. And next thing I know, a few weeks later, we've sold like five, six million records already. I mean, it's just, a, I never heard of anything like that. Now, what I'm thinking, because it, you know, it, it was on all the stations, was there ever a time where you're driving your car and you hear it and you go, I don't want to hear that, and you turn to another station and it's playing on there? Hey, there was a time I drove my car when every station I pushed, it was playing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it didn't matter what station I was on. Okay, I played that, pushed but played that, pushed but played that. It was just playing everywhere. And don't forget, that's when videos are really taking off. And the director, Ivan Reitman, did the video, and the video became enormously popular. I mean, the video really took off. Everybody saw the video. And then the other thing that was unusual about this song, more so than my other songs, this became number one in 52, number one and number two or something, in 52 countries around the world. It was a hit everywhere. Now, you also got nominated for, a, did you get nominated for a Grammy for that? Yeah, I got a Grammy. The big one is I was nominated for an Oscar. And I lost the Oscars to Stevie Wonder. But that, I mean, but it's just, you know, that must be, you can feel My that teacher. upset. Yeah. <laughs> what it, well, was it? There, there's no way to feel bad about it. Now, first of all, he was scared to death, I think, because my song sold like 35 million more than his right. <laughs> at the time. The one He won for the woman in red. And and I got to tell you, there was no way for me to win this thing. If, if I had won the Oscar, I don't think he'd speak to me anymore. That'd be the end of that relationship. <laughs> what, what, so, was it, what was it like going to the Oscars? So, well, first of all, it wouldn't even go to the Oscars. If you remember the 57th Oscars, it was. And they had me sing Ghostbusters with Don DeLuise and a whole cast of dancers and orchestra and everything. They spent like, I remember they spent half a million dollars on the production of the one song for the Oscars. And did you enjoy it? I had a great time. When somebody says, don't be scared now, but two billion people watching, I said, oh my gosh, I've been waiting on this all my life. Two billion people, if I wave my hand to the left, they all got to see it. I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> you know, we don't now, think about... it. In, in England, in England, I did win the British Oscar, though. So that was, I beat Stevie out of the British Oscar. <laughs> now, now, is that a good looking award? Is it, is, is, what's the British Oscar look like? It doesn't look like the Oscar here, but it's, it's actually the, it's like a face on top of a wood square with a plaque. So I got to get it done. I'm going to get it done in marble so that the base, I like that. I want the base to be a little heavier. But it was presented to me by Princess Anne, so I had to do the royal curtsy and, you know, the 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 the, the, the military, they, they tell you what to say, don't hang your hand out. You know, with the royal family, you got to do all the things. So now, you know, you have a number one hit, and then you start writing for other people. Does it make you easier to, do people seek you out because they know you're a good writer? Because I know you wrote for New Edition and people like that. Do band, did they, were they coming to, to coming to get you or did you have a publishing deal where people, the the record company would just put people with you? Well, most of the songs I wrote for other people I did early in my career before radio. Okay. 
uh, with, those, with those songs. And uh, nobody was coming to get me. That was out me out in the street in a car. It was, this is what I try to tell my kids, too. No one's coming over your house and discovering you, y'all. You got to get out in the street, in your car, go to every club, every studio, every you got to be out there. And so I was make, forcing people to listen to my music, and that's how I got most of my songs placed, is out in the street doing it. Now, you're in the middle, of, or you're about to start the shooting the documentary. What made you decide that you wanted to do that? And you were, and people, if you haven't seen The Hired Gun, raising it, so check that movie out. It's a very good movie, and uh, it's got some so many talented musicians, and a lot of people you have been on this show, so you, you're, you'll be familiar with them. What made you decide to want to sit there and do this movie? Because it's something that, you know, you have such a big showcase of work, but, you know, some people might just know you for Ghostbusters. Is that one of the reasons, because you want to convey your point and your career? Well, first of all, I, I didn't even know I wanted to do this film. This is more of a France idea. It started off with me because I, I was telling him the different stories because I told him I, I got to write a book because the book is going to be sort of like the movie Pearl Harbor where the music is interesting because everything I've gone through in my career from being a star to, to being working with other people and all the stories. But I told him that that story is actually a comedy show. In the background of the comedy show like Pearl Harbor is the music like the war was. It's like Pearl Harbor is sort of a love story. So I told him I want to do something. And the more we talked about it, by the way, we were trapped on airplanes like going to Australia for 16 hours. So we got to talk about something, right? <laughs> and the more I kept telling them all the different things that happened to me, he came up with the idea like, well, shoot, I should be doing this movie. He said, everything you told me, now I know everything. He says, we got to shoot it now. And of course, I'm not disagreeing. Anytime I can get my face on a big screen, I like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, tell me one of the interesting stories. Tell me one of your interesting stories that you you have. Okay, interesting story. Um, Nineteen years old, Mac Revenick, Doctor John in Louisiana, uh, takes me, and he wants to take part of Stevie Wonder's band that he used to have with him to England, and we're going to record with Van Morrison. So we all fly over to England, and we go get a, a limo, and we drive up to this place called the Manor in Oxford, England. We're in Oxford, England, and I mean, this place is spooky. I mean, you know, you always look at the Dragon movies and say, well, <laughs> I'd never be in this position. Who's stupid <laughs> enough to be in a house that looks like that in the middle of the dark, right? Well, I found myself in one of those houses, and the fog was rolling in, and they got giant uh, Irish wolfhound dogs and a graveyard right in the back. I mean, it's less set up to be Dracula all the way. So we, they had a studio in the house. We get to the studio. In walks Van Morrison. He takes one look at me and says, what the heck, you know, some four-letter words, what the heck you doing here? He thinks I'm a spy from Warner Bros. <laughs> I haven't played a note. He thinks I'm a spy from Warner Bros., right? And so he pulls me in the hallway, and we're having this, I'm not having any argument, I'm just listening to him. He's fussing at me, fussing at me, fussing at me. And I'm thinking that he's really fussing at me, like, what's the problem? Like, you should hear me play the guitar, dude. Everybody likes this. I mean, I had to even take my guitar to the case, and he thinks I'm a spy from Warner Bros. saying all these crazy things that make absolutely no sense. Fan things a little sensibility came a little later and I'm going to tell you why. so now it's 2.30 in the morning and we're at this castle thing with the beds with the the, the, the you know all those screens silk screening <laughs> above the bed and all of the hanging fixes you know those spooky beds and so everybody's got this separate room and it's way down the hall and a whole other section I wake up at 2 in the morning because I got a feeling somebody's looking at me you just get that funny feeling yeah. right <laughs> It's hot there, too, so I'm in the bed, way down in the other hall, private bedroom. And next thing I know, 
I ain't got any clothes on. At two in the morning, there's Van Morrison standing over me. <laughs> okay. Now, so you say to yourself, yeah, I'm 19 years old. Now, I'm a little wiser as I'm older. But at the time, I'm thinking, how long has he been standing there? <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't said anything. And who stands over a 19-year-old kid with no clothes on? I mean, well, how, what are you doing? Why? He's not saying anything, by the way. He's just standing there looking at me. Now, I'm just going to let you draw your own conclusion from that. You know? But, I mean, <laughs> he never said anything. He just, but he stood there another 15, 20 minutes before he walked out the door. <laughs> so, how was it when you saw him the next day? Yeah. Did he even make any notice of it? Did he say anything? <laughs> Well, uh, that's that's a crazy story. Now, did you did he did you end up did he end up liking your your guitar playing? No, I got the heck out of there first thing in the morning. He never heard me play the guitar. You left. You just said screw it. <laughs> I left. If you look at Rat Mac Revenick wrote on his website before the Ray Parker Jr. You know he was a guitar player. Him and Ron Dick Van didn't get away get away, you know, get along very well. He wrote a little bit about it. He didn't tell the whole story, but he wrote a little bit about it. That's just one of many stories. We got all kinds of crazy. Tell me another one. That's, yeah, that's, that's a great story. Just tell, tell, me, tell me one more crazy story. Well, well one, of, one of them relates to the, I don't know if you saw the movie Detroit. No, uh, no I, I want to see that. that. You know, I'm, I'm from that area. Well, the movie took place on Virginia Park, and I grew up on the street, same street that the movie was found on Virginia Park, and I got beat up by the police as a kid. You know, they, at 12, 13 years old, they hold me by my shoes and let my money fall to the ground, then they take my football, then the worst part, they drive you a mile or two away from home, then you walk home. Then you get beat up for disrespecting all the other people's neighborhoods walking through it trying to get home. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, we can go stories, right? We, we could talk about how I let Stevie Wonder drive a car. Okay, you got, you got to tell me that. I, I got to hear that because that's just something that, <laughs> that's that's something that should be the name of an album or if you, or an autobiography. When you when you write your book, it has to say, How I Let Stevie Wonder Drive a Car. That's just, I want to hear the story. Well, back in the day, yeah, back in the day when we, me and him used to hang out all the time, we were just two of us together, and he wanted to drive, right? But he wanted to drive down the street. So I wasn't going to let him drive down the street, so I told him, okay, I'm going to pull over and let you drive. But unbeknownst to him, I went to an empty parking lot because it was late at night. So I went to an empty parking lot and told him, yeah, you're in the street, you got to drive. So he got behind the wheel, and you have to say, go slow. And yeah, I was telling him left, right, and then hit the brakes, stop, you know, stop, go left, right. So you have to let him drive. And if I didn't let him drive, I'd get a $50 fine. <laughs> well, okay, so I, <laughs> that's, that's great. No, that's, that's, the, you let Stevie Wonder drive. I mean, that, that better be in the movie. Yeah. Now, see, all, already, for, oh, all, all, all that's going to be in the movie. So now you got the Stevie Wonder story. You got the, the, the Oxford Manor in England story. You got the Marvin Gaye, me driving the concert. You got me getting beat up by the police. So we're just scratching the surface here a little bit. Now, do you ever look back and say, wow, you know, I've lived a really amazing life? Because those stories are just stuff. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's definitely, I'm not the guy who worked nine to five at four and then got his retirement later. I, I, everything in my life has been unbelievably interesting. I show up at the best places at the best times. And, you know, the day that uh, Mick Jagger was taking the picture with Bob Dylan at his birthday party, I was at that birthday party in New York. Now, is there anybody you've met 
that I mean, because you you played with these legends when you were so young. I mean, with Marvin and Stevie. Yeah. Is there anyone you've met over the years that you were just like, wow, like you were a little in awe of? Because you seem like someone who wouldn't have to be in awe because you've worked with legends your whole life. Well, the, the ones you're talking about is the awestruck. I mean, Marvin Gaye would put together things in such a strange way. It was just unbelievable. Stevie Wonder has got to be the musical genius of the 20th century, without a doubt. I mean, so working with him, I mean, it just doesn't get any more musically interested than that through your whole life. Uh, Herbie Hancock, unbelievable guy. Barry White, mesmerizing. He could just put it together so fast, and he'd get it done all in the same day and book the string the horns, and he'd had an orchestration. And uh, and a guy named you wouldn't even know, Gene Page, who wrote all the strings, all of the romantic orchestration orchestra you hear on Barry White or Lionel Richie or Diana Ross, like Endless Love or Atlantic Star, all of that's Gene Page. Even the Righteous Brothers is Gene Page. So remember that name, Gene Page. That's a very, very important name in music. Now, how do you write now? I mean, how has your music style changed over the years? Have you pretty? Do you still practice a lot, or do you sit there because you have played for so long? I mean, I, pra I practice, and I hate to use the word practice. I play for myself because I enjoy it. Now, so I'm playing all the time. Now, what and I you... got a studio next door that I built in my house. My me and my kids are in here all the time. I got two sons. Hopefully, they're putting out product uh, this year later this year. So there's just so much music. I'm going to Japan next week on tour. So my entire life is, is overwhelmed with music every day. Now, what do you play? Like in the daytime when you're just hanging out and you want to play something? In the daytime, I'm not playing the drums. Oh, do I do do that a little bit. I'm not playing the bass or the keyboards. I do that a little bit. But mostly I'm practicing my guitar. I just like to play the guitar. I like the way it sounds just to me. I mean, I don't need anybody around. And I just have a wonderful time. Now, your sons, what kind of music are they recording? Are they together, or are they being... Because the young folks' music. No, they're, they're doing it separately, and they're both really, really talented. But they're cutting all that new young stuff, you know. You know, like that... <laughs> like, what, I, don't, I don't know what you call it. I mean, it's either R&B, rap, hip-hop, uh, EDM, disco. I mean, it's all of that combined, I guess. Now, through your years, what I mean, what are some of your favorite places you've played? You said you've gone to Japan. It's funny. You're going to Japan, you said, next week. I go to Japan every year. It's, it's one of my favorite places to play because they love the music so much. And they got the crew. And they just treat you nice. They pick up the airport. It's just a pretty fit, nice hotels. You know, and you don't have to dodge your T's and cross everything. You know, in a, unfortunately, in our country, if somebody said, hey, we want you to go to New York and play, well, you know what? We need a contract. We need a lawyer. We need an agent. I mean, and there's so much paperwork that it really outshines the gig. You know what I'm saying? Like, you start to think, you know, people are thinking, oh, he's going to get on stage and play. Yeah, but I, I got to work for a whole week before then doing paperwork and lining up stuff and all this stuff. Whereas in Japan, it's taken care of for you. They just say, okay, what do you want? You know they're going to give you the best of everything. So you don't really just check. They just have people to just take care of everything and make sure you have a wonderful time. So that part is, it just makes the music so much more pleasurable. Now, with Ghostbusters, when you see it on a TV show, do do now do they still have to get your clearance, or how does that happen? Like, absolutely. Do they? Well, I gotta get paid. Yeah, I know, but do they? It with me, and I gotta get paid. Can you turn down a project if you want? Like, if you saw something you didn't want it to be in, can you say no? I don't want to give you that. I can say no to everything except the film, or something directly related with the film. Otherwise, I could hold up all the Ghostbusters movies. I'd own them all, right? Right. <laughs> Have you turned down any so projects? That, that part, 
No, I, I don't. I don't remember turning down anything. I can't think of anything that's. At least no one's trying to do anything bad enough where I got to turn it down. Most of the things that people want to do, they're huge things that pay, you know, like a lot of money. I think we should get the money if it's on the table. Right. Now the movie, there's a lot of cool. You're going to do some cool perks. Now you're you're going. To, I believe if people invest enough money, they can they can get a, a personalized ringtone from you. Is that true? Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but I'll do whatever Francis. <laughs> he's really. No, I'm just teasing. You know, he's got. He's got. He, you know, he makes me promise everything, and we're going to deliver that. Like that ringtone you hear on my phone, we'll do a version of that with your name on it. I guess if they really come through good, do some corporate stuff. Yeah. Now, sitting here looking back, what have been some of the the, the biggest highlights of your career? A few biggest that you sit there, but the Hollywood star, we know that's one of them. But what were some other really big highlights that you just really said, man, I chose the right profession? Yeah. Well, you know what? The music, first of all, let's start with the beginning. The music itself has been the most rewarding thing over all these years. Okay. So let's just start with the music itself. And, and the idea that I get to listen to it, and by the way, I'm as big a groupie as I am an entertainer. Like when I'm standing on the stage and, and Keith Richards is to my right and Chaka Khan is to my left, I'm having a wonderful time. I got the best seat in the house. I don't care if you paid a thousand dollars, you sit right in the front. I'm in the best seat. I'm standing right next to me. So I can hear everything going on. So that in itself is some of the most exciting things. Even if I'm not playing my music on stage and I'm just playing with John Legend or somebody like that, I'm standing on stage in the center where everything's happening, standing right next to him playing the piano. So let's start with that. Some of the other days, uh, getting the style on Hollywood Boulevard, obviously that's one of the best days of my life. As far, I mean, to come up never, we had a huge party and a bunch of stuff going on. But, you know, also the, the experiences of hanging with Stevie Wonder, hanging with Barry White, hanging with uh, Herbie Hancock. I was with him last week. He put together a band that was just, I thought I know Herbie Hancock because I cut so many records with him. We've been together so many years. But the new band he put together, I urge you to go see it. It's five guys, and they're playing nothing that you think they would play, and it was just unbelievably excellent. To see him change it up like that, spin, put a new spin on it, just unbelievable. So all of that stuff to me is just uh, just amazing, you know, as well as I have some of the best times cutting the music and just playing it in my car or just sitting here playing the guitar. To me, those are the things I'll never forget. You know, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful moments. See, I'm a huge music fan. The thing I love is I have that Amazon Prime music, and it's great because I can just yell to my yeah. Alexa to play a song. And it's such a great thing because you can hear so many music. Who are some of the artists that are out yeah. now that you like? Who are some artists that you like that are out right now? Well, I like the Heathen song. What's, what's the 21 Pilots, right? I like 21 Pilots. I like the Chainsmokers. Uh, there's a bunch of groups I like. Uh, you know, Some of them I don't know the names of, but those two in particular, I remember seeing them. And I knew the names. But there's a few really good. I like Maroon 5. That was good, good music. And uh, I guess the thing that I like about music the most today is not even getting back to some songs or something I can understand. There was a period in the 90s where everybody was mad at each other. I mean, <laughs> shoot the police. Then it started to my, shoot your mama. Shoot, shoot everybody. You know? <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, it was more violent. Every All the women were bitches and hoes. And they called themselves that. And themselves up 
in over the 2000s, I think. You know, it's just the the music has gotten more musical and things have changed. You know, when it first got into sampling, people were sampling notes, but it was out of tune with the piano. The bass be out of tune, the guitar be out of tune. And, you know, it didn't, nobody seemed to care. So music has taken on more of a quality appeal, in my opinion. Now, when you do your tour, when you go to Japan and when you tour, how long of a set do you play? And do you play The Other Woman? Do you play Ghostbusters? Or how do you put your set list together? Absolutely. No, absolutely. First of all, it's easy to put my set. I play like 10 hits. <laughs> just played all the hits. Uh, I, always, I always look at somebody and say, well, you know, they're coming to hear the hits. Don't play all these other songs that don't nobody know the name of. Don't make them sit through. You know, don't play two or three hits and then make them sit through two or three songs where they're going to the bathroom, where they're having, you know, going to sleep. Keep them going. And I never get tired of playing the hits because it's nice and you're blessed just to have so many songs to play. So why not play them all? You know, so we try to do that and make things as interesting as possible. And I don't tour a lot anyway, so I'm never bored playing the same songs. You know, I just go out on a few things a year and just have a really good time. I go to Switzerland last year, I went to Singapore. So I go to different places of interest and play in, in very special places and have a good time. In your set list, where does a Ghostbuster song usually appear? Last. You say you always do it last. You always end with it. Well, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's just, that's what people want to hear. They know you're going to do an encore if you're coming back. If you haven't played Ghostbusters yet, right. I don't know. I wonder if you play it first. Well, the little kids might leave. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, uh, it's a. How about this? If I'm playing with other people, or there's five or six stars on the show, and we're all playing, you know, like gosh, where everybody do two or three songs, and they Ghostbusters is always the last song. Everybody will say, "Well, let's do Ghostbusters last," and that, because it gets the crowd going. It's just, it's just no way to lose. How many times do you think you've played that song on stage? Oh my God, I have no clue. <laughs> I, have, I, mean, I can't even think about counting. But I've, I, I should not forget the words to that song. Let's put it that. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever taken an air, <laughs> a, air a, like one of those brain farts and and forgotten the songs? Has that ever happened? None. It's happened to me on plenty of songs, but not on those ones. <laughs> okay. Well, the movie... I'm something looking... about that one. I remember everything about that. <laughs> I remember all of it. And, you know, people always ask me, are you tired of hearing that? Of course I'm not tired. Are you kidding me? You know, I always refer to it as like the lotto ticket. Would you be tired if I gave you the $300 million lotto ticket? Right. Of course not. <laughs> but I'm sure... I'm Bring sure, it on. I'm sure your kids I'm are probably... I'm going to get some today. <laughs> your kids are probably like, oh, God, we got to hear Dad again. <laughs> You know how kids are. They, yeah, yeah, they, right, they, yeah. they never appreciate. Like They're like, oh, God, here's Dad. I, I go out. Well, believe it or not, my, my, kids, my kids are actually a little more appreciative than that. Okay, good. Because they, yeah, they, you know, they, you know, they're in the studio all the time with all this equipment and everything they could possibly dream of that no one else has. And when they look at it, they say, hmm, I wonder how this come up. Well, Dad got this off of some of them songs. He was right. You know? So they sort of got this just, just a, I think when they were younger, they were more like that. But, you know, my youngest is 17. The two of them doing music is 17 and 19. So I think they, they quite, they're getting there quite now. And then, by the way, what's even more amazing is every now and then they let me play guitar on one of their songs. Well, they should. You're a legend. <laughs> Come on. They don't know. that. They, 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 you know, they don't care. They're like, oh, Dad's older. But every now and then I come up with a guitar part, they're like, that, you know, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, they can get down. You know, so it's like, you know, they just had that start a look on their face like, wow, that guitar, that can play the guitar. And it's like, what do you think I've been doing the last 60 years? Right. You know? 
Now, in higher, in higher, in higher gun, Steve Lukather gave you a very big compliment. How does it make you feel when another fellow great musician gives you a compliment? I think, believe you said you're like the greatest rhythm guitar or something. How does that make you feel? Yeah. Oh, it makes me feel wonderful because, first of all, I think he's one of the greatest guitar players in the world. We've all grown up together. Me, him, Jay Drayton, uh, Dean Parks, Lee Rittenauer. I mean, we're just all Wawa, David T. We're all best of friends. And each one of us plays so different from the other, and we're all amazed when we look at what the other person does. And it's just the, the highest level of respect you can possibly have is for all the best guitar players you know to think you're one of them. I mean, it's just it's no better reward than that. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, Ray, I want, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, the movie, are you excited about the movie? How long is there? Is there... Oh, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too excited about the movie. I wish we were shooting this afternoon. I keep combing my hair and nobody shows up. You know, I'm ready to go. <laughs> how long? How long is it going to take to shoot? You know, I have no idea. That's see. That's why I said uh, what I did correct is Fran did a wonderful job on Hired Gun, and so I'm smart enough to get out of his way, and we're going to do whatever he says. To well, that's good, and I'm looking forward I, to seeing him. And I, yeah. And, and the same thing when I make a record. I don't want anybody to be telling me how to make my record. I make records. You know, if you pay me the money and you hire me to, to write and produce it, shut up and let me write and produce it, do what I do. So I don't want to get in his way. But, you know, at the same time, I'm telling him, man, this has got to be interesting. It's got to be funny. It's got to be this. So, you know, I've already laid out all of the things I think it needs to be. And after that, he's got it. He has my complete confidence. He's got it. Well, that's good because it is about you, and I'm sure it will be good because Higher Gun was great. And, yeah. Uh, now, now, are you on Twitter or anything? Do you any social media? I'm on all of this stuff. Every single social media. Twitter, I think, is O'Reo, at O'Reo. Or you can find Ray Parker Jr. somewhere on there. Facebook, Ray Parker Jr. This the official site, several other sites. Uh, I think the my, my Instagram is Ray Parker Jr. 1 because somebody stole it. So, Ray Parker Jr. won. Don't you hate that? And then we got, so, yeah, I got all that stuff. Don't you, don't you hate that? Because I'm Cooper Talk one. Because someone took my Cooper Talk. I'm like, doesn't that piss you off? It's like, exactly. you, are, you are Ray Parker. I don't want to be that? Ray Parker yeah. one. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I want to I thank you for coming on. And people, go check out The Hired Gun. And go to, uh, the movie's going to be called, Who Are You Going to Call? And it's going to be, you can go to uh, a crowd, so I believe it's on GoFundMe, and you can, there's a ton of great stuff you can, uh, you can get by donating, you know, and you can go see the movie, you can get signed autographs, so go do that, and follow Ray on social media, go check out his music, if you have that Alexa, just say, hey man, Ray Parker Jr., also follow me on Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk, also Instagram, CooperTalk1, and email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And my website is coopertalk.net, where you can find 679 episodes of this show. And finally, my other uh, website well, is stopthesalt.com. From when I was sick, I wrote a cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes, no pictures. So go buy it. You can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at stopthesalt.com, I make more money. So anyway, want to check out... You have 700 episodes? Seven, uh, 679 episodes, yeah. Well, that's close enough. Yeah, I, 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 inter- My God. I probably have 700, but I, there's some in the early, my early ones I don't want to hear because I was just new at it. So, yeah, so I, I have a lot of episodes. So, and you're going to be, you'll, you'll if I'm, I'm getting ready to go every day for two years. I got to do an episode every day just to, to sort of catch up. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what I say. I usually do about 100 a year. So, anyway, people, check, wow. check out Ray Parker Jr. 
Check out Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.